has there ever been a suspect in this case? Not yet. From the Blade, this is Code 18 Unsolved, Season 1, Episode 6, Searching. Code 18 just references the radio code that we use when we describe a dead body. police have never named a suspect in Alvandera's disappearance, but according to records, they seem to focus their investigation on the last known person to see him, his son, Tim Darrow. They searched Tim's home and property under warrant three times in five months, more than any other location, which could also be because it was the last place Alvin was seen. They also searched Alvin's home and Tim's girlfriend's home once each. We'll start where police started, with Alvin's home at 327 Majestic Drive. They searched his property on July 30th, 2017, three days after his disappearance. Alvin's family had already walked through his house by then. Prior to Jeremy officially reporting Alvin missing on July 28th, Alvin's son Tim, friend Rocky Conley, and neighbor Peggy Deskamps met at Alvin's house to look around. Peggy had a key. They were searching for anything that might explain why Alvin was missing or where he might be, but they ended up empty-handed. What did you find in the house? Nothing. Dogs were in here. Just walked around. There wasn't nothing in here. Police didn't have better luck when they tried. In the affidavit explaining why they wanted to search Alvin's home, police didn't really explain why they thought they might find evidence there. Really, it was just a starting point. The affidavit explains that Alvin was at the Lost Peninsula Marina with his older son Jeremy Darrow. He ran home for more supplies. He talked to Peggy in his driveway. Tim confronted him about a stolen motorcycle in his garage and took video of them talking about the bike together. Then, the affidavit says, quote, Timothy Darrow gave conflicting statements to Toledo police detectives regarding the events that followed that video on his cell phone. Since that time, the afternoon of July 27, 2017, Alvin E. Darrow Jr. has not been seen or heard from, end quote. So, police said they needed to search Alvin's home for any evidence or information that could lead to his discovery. Specifically, they were looking for clothing, blood, his cell phone, personal identification, and surveillance equipment. They didn't find any of those items, according to a list of evidence seized, but they did take Alvin's computer and a digital recorder. That's it. Two days later, they searched Tim's house and garage at 3541 Dean Avenue, which is catter-corner to Alvin's home on Majestic Drive their yards touch. Alvin had been missing for five days at that point, but according to that search warrant affidavit, police still suspected that they might find in Tim's house 
the clothing Alvin was wearing when he disappeared, Tim's clothing from that day, blood, Alvin's cell phone, his wallet, and personal identification, and a list of other items. Among them, an AR-15 rifle, a 22 caliber rifle, a 70-inch TV, an Xbox One, a 12-gauge shotgun, and various ammunition. If you recall, those were the very items reported missing at the same time that Thomas Wiley's white Harley-Davidson motorcycle was stolen in a burglary at his son Nick's house. Quote, I am satisfied that there is probable cause to believe that the property so described is being concealed on the person, in the vehicle, on the premise above described, Detective Deborah Hahn wrote in the warrant. Should any of those items be found, police were ready to consider charges including aggravated murder, murder, voluntary manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter, reckless homicide, negligent homicide, assault, aggravated assault, felonious assault, kidnapping, abduction, unlawful restraint, burglary, receiving stolen property, and engaging in a pattern of criminal activity. Why did police think they might find these items at Tim's house? Here's what the warrant says. First, it says that when Rocky came looking for Alvin at his house and couldn't find him, he noticed Tim's black F-450 truck was parked in Tim's driveway. Tim wasn't answering his phone, nor did anyone answer when Rocky knocked on Tim's back door. But Rocky insists that Tim's truck was there. This would be a deviation from Tim's timeline, which you heard last episode, where he says he left his house after fighting with his dad and only returned later in the evening. We do know that Tim was back at his house by 7.30 that night because police talked to him there. It's recorded on their body camera footage. The warrant goes on to say that when Rocky drove to the marina to ask Jeremy about Alvin being missing, Jeremy told him that his brother Tim had just called and said he got into a fight with their father because apparently Alvin, at one point, had promised to give Tim the stolen white Harley-Davidson motorcycle, but then changed his mind and was evicting Tim from the house on Dean Avenue. Remember, Tim was living there, but Alvin owned it. The report says Jeremy described Tim crying on the phone and saying he didn't know what to do. Neither Jeremy nor Tim recalled those details in my conversations with them. Jeremy said when his brother called that day upset, he told him their father had been chased away by a group of bikers. When I asked Tim about it, he said the encounter Jeremy recalled happened days earlier, though later, he did say a group of bikers showed up to his house as he was leaving on the day his father went missing. The report also says that Tim admitted to punching and choking his father in the past and said it's not unusual for the two to assault each other. However, it does not mention there being an assault on the day Alvin went missing, nothing that would explain blood found on the stolen motorcycle. It hadn't been confirmed yet to be Alvin's blood. And finally, the search warrant says Tim had a recent injury to his right hand, described as swollen and bruised knuckles, and he admitted to having a physical altercation with his father, though the warrant says he gave conflicting statements about that altercation. But again, 
police really didn't find anything they were looking for. They collected a gray scarf, a gray North Carolina sweatshirt, a piece of plexiglass with suspected blood on it, a lanyard with keys, and a swab of suspected blood from Tim's bathroom. Eight days later, police searched the home of Tim's then-girlfriend, Tiffany Dewey. Tim said he'd stayed with her the night his father went missing, so police went there searching for clothing belonging to Tim or Alvin from the night he went missing, or any other items belonging to Alvin. But a new item also showed up on their search list. Police said they were looking for a 32-gallon garbage can with a large yellow and black sticker on it. The garbage can was seen in police body cameras loaded in the back of Tim's pickup truck in his driveway on the day his father went missing, and it hasn't been seen since. The report didn't elaborate on the significance of this, so I started asking about it. Rocky Conley recalled seeing the garbage can as he sat outside Tim's house calling 911 around 7.05 p.m. on the day Alvin went missing. So now we're sitting in front of what was Tim's house at the time, and you're calling kind of from a diagonal angle where you can see where? Into the backyard? No, I can't. I can basically see the back of Tim's truck and the whole front of the house right here. I'm not, I can't really see into the backyard from over there because I'm sitting by that green sign. Okay, and where was Tim's truck in the drive? It's right there in the driveway. The rear end of it was pulled up just past that tree a little bit. Like probably, probably like level with the house just about. Okay, and you saw a garbage can in the back of it. Yes. Was the lid on? Oh, it was just laying down flat. Like the back of the, like it was laying flat, the open end facing the cab of the truck. Now, of course, the garbage can's gone. So... You never saw the garbage can again? No. Nobody has. Police confirmed that they've never found that garbage can, but they know it existed. They showed me photos of it from their body camera video in which there is a garbage can in the bed of Tim's truck, and Tim himself is standing next to the vehicle as he speaks to an officer. Police were there checking into Rocky's first 911 call. It looks like your standard 32-gallon garbage can. It's black It's standing upright in the truck bed with no lid on. There are bright yellow stickers attached to the side. It looks shiny and new. The weird thing, though? Tim denies ever having a garbage can. This is from my interview with Tim, most of which you heard last episode. I was talking to him outside the mechanic shop where he works, so it was a bit windy. But this is what he had to say about the garbage can. So I know in a lot of reports, there's it says that you know you had like a, a garbage can in the back of your truck that night. That's that a lie. I love no I love how they can. said that. They even said I went somewhere else. That's a lie. That was a straight lie. And it, that, I can't believe they even said that. You never had a garbage can in your truck. No, they even told me I went. They got me on video buying a garbage can. Well, then really, right, really, that's a lie. I can't believe they even said that. That made me. That made me. That made me mad. Why would they lie about that? Exactly. So they could so they could get me to maybe try and tell them something. And they told me they had me on video at the store buying it. I said, well, then you're lying. I told them straight to their face. I said, that's a lie. 
because I can't believe they even said that. They're just trying to get anything out of anybody is what they're trying to do. Police tell me they have no video of Tim buying a garbage can, nor have they claimed to. But they do have the body camera video proving the garbage can existed. Still, Tim denies it. So if there was video of this garbage can sitting in your truck, you think it's altered video? Never had a garbage can in the back of my truck. Did you have anything back there? When? The night that your father went missing. Toolbox. I have a toolbox, that was it. But again, when police searched Tim's and Tiffany's properties, they never found this garbage can or anything else of significant evidentiary value. At Tiffany's, they didn't collect a single item. Detective Bill Goodlett says this is largely where their investigation began to stall. Really nothing stands out that I can recall that was recovered that would have given us any anything new. I mean, there was nothing, no, no, no evidence that was recovered that, that helped us in determining where Alvin was or what happened to him. With no evidence to explain what happened to Alvin or where he might be, other theories about his disappearance started to circulate. On July 31st, 2017, Toledo Police posted a message to its Facebook page asking for the community's help in finding Alvin. It received more than a thousand shares and 118 comments. People started writing in with possible sightings of Alvin. One woman claimed she'd seen him eating at the diner where she works on the Friday after he went missing. She planned to check the security cameras. She never gives an update on the post, but I called her and the diner's owner recently, and they said the video was reviewed but did not show Alvin. Another commenter believed she may have seen Alvin getting gas at the Speedway on Alexis Road about 5 a.m. on July 31st. She wrote, the guy I saw may have been a little younger and had lots of tattoos on his arms. Walked into the gas station just before 5 a.m. wanting to buy beer. I believe he had on blue jeans, a white beater tank, tan work boots, and had one finger wrapped up on his left hand. Sounds like Hopper, someone commented on the post. He'd been described as last wearing blue jeans and tan work boots. But it wasn't him. Another tipster thought they saw Alvin at a Denny's restaurant in Fostoria. But again, police looked at the surveillance video and it was not Alvin. Alvin's sister, Sue Omler, who declined to be interviewed for the podcast, wrote on police's Facebook post that she and her siblings were out searching for him in ditches along the river and everywhere else they could think of that he might go or, quote, could have been thrown into. Again, Alvin's family suspected from the start that he wasn't just missing, he was dead, and they wanted to lay his body to rest. Police, too, didn't believe that Alvin just walked away from his life. In Alvin's missing persons flyer, it says, Foul play is suspected. 
So who then could be responsible? What about a gang of bikers? The theory comes up again and again in Alvin's case. We already know that when police responded to the Darrow's neighborhood after Rocky's first 911 call reporting men with guns running up to Tim's house, they didn't find any such situation. They didn't find shell casings from fired bullets, no neighbors reported hearing gunfire, motorcycles, or any commotion whatsoever. But there was something to this idea that bikers or some other group may have had reason or motive to be there. Alvin really did appear to buy a stolen white Harley Davidson from someone just days before. Numerous people have confirmed that, including police. As Tim said in the last episode, his friend Alan Wheatley arranged to connect Alvin with the men who had the stolen motorcycle, and they met in the parking lot off LaGrange Street, not too far from Alvin's home, to make the exchange. At the end, Alvin went home with the bike. I wanted to ask Alan Wheatley about these men he introduced Alvin to. When I found him, he declined to speak with me. But I did stumble on someone else who knew about it. I was dialing number after number trying to reach Alan Wheatley when someone I wasn't expecting answered and said he knew exactly what I was calling about. Hello? Hello? I am uh, trying to reach an Alan Wheatley. Alan Wheatley? Who is this? My name is Caitlin. I'm a reporter with The Blade. The, the newspaper. Huh? I, I'm with the newspaper, The Blade. I'm trying to reach Alan Wheatley for a story I'm doing. Story about what, dear? So we are putting out a new, uh, a new podcast in which we re-examine some unsolved cases in Toledo, and we're working on the missing person case of Alvin Darrow. And Al- yeah, that's a friend of mine. Are you are you Alan? No, I'm not Alan. Alan's my son. I'm Anthony. Anthony Wheatley Sr., or Tony, as he's more commonly known ran a mechanic shop at the intersection of Detroit and Sylvania Avenues until cancer forced him to retire at the end of 2017. But he'd known the Darrow family for decades and was close to Alvin, who he exclusively calls Hopper. He said Hopper stopped by his shop nearly every day to talk back then. And Tony knew Hopper had bought the stolen motorcycle. He knew because a friend had offered it to him first. My dude's got a motorcycle. He lived up over the top. He said, my dude's got a motorcycle for sale. And I said, oh, yeah, what kind? She goes, I don't know, but it's got a supercharger on it and shit. I said, dude got title and shit? She said, no, it's dope. You know the first thing come out of my mouth, don't you? Don't want nothing to do with it. But Hopper did want it, whether or not he knew it was stolen. Tony's son, Alan Wheatley, arranged a meeting between Hopper and the sellers for the exchange. Still, there was no evidence or reason to believe that the sellers or any other motorcycle gang would come after Hopper afterward. 
No one in the neighborhood heard anything that day, which to Hopper's family and friends ruled out the theory that he could have been abducted by bikers. This is Hopper's sister, Cheryl Bonk. I really don't think anybody came and took them in their car because he'd have been yelling and screaming and somebody would have seen that. He would not have went anywhere with anybody in a quiet manner. It would have been the whole neighborhood would have been knowing something's going on. But for good measure, police looked into it. They turned their attention to the only other known biker enthusiasts in the case, the Wileys. Thomas Wiley is a prominent businessman in the community. He owns a sand and gravel distribution company out of Perrysburg, and he owned the stolen white turbocharged Harley-Davidson motorcycle. That gave Thomas Wiley a motive to want the motorcycle back, and possibly to confront Alvin about having it. But did he have the drive to intervene, or the knowledge of where to find the motorcycle? I asked Mr. Wiley and his son, Nick Wiley, outright. Some of this might be new to you guys, but there was a story at the time that some men went to Alvin's house on the day that he went missing, and they were looking for this motorcycle, and they had guns, and Tim saw them, like, they, Tim and his father ran in separate directions, and they were trying to get away from these men and guns. Um, had you heard that before? Never. Oh, no. Okay. This is where it gets kind of weird, but I have to ask. Would you ever send someone to Alvin's house to recover your motorcycle? No. We didn't even know it was there until the cops picked it up. Yeah, we didn't know it was there. The cops called and said, because yeah, so I had to verify it was my bike. And then I went down and picked it up, you know, a day later, two days later, what have you. But I didn't, I didn't know his bike was there until the cops called and said, hey, we found your bike. Police were apparently asking the Wileys the same kinds of questions, or, as Thomas Wiley puts it, interrogating them, particularly after he reported finding blood on the motorcycle. A week later, they called me and my son in for and interrogated us for whatever dumb reasons, and they pulled DNA on Nick, none on me, and I don't know if that one time they thought we had something to do with the father disappearing, but... I told him that that was pretty much a joke to try to accuse us of something like that. and That's all I ever heard of it. And there was never no charges put on anybody for the, my motorcycle being at that house. The Wileys do know that Nick's DNA was compared to DNA pulled off of a screwdriver that was found in Nick's house after the burglary. Nick was sure it didn't belong to him, but the DNA was supposed to confirm it. It seems, though, that the screwdriver was another dead end. There was a screwdriver that was found in my house, too, that they, the cops had pulled DNA off of, and they got, like, multiple people's fingerprints on it. But they told me they couldn't do anything because, you know, someone could go steal someone's screwdriver and take it to a crime scene or whatever. But that didn't make much sense to me. DNA or not, the Wileys have been adamant from the start. They had nothing to do with Alvin's disappearance. To be honest, they asked me if I would have had any involvement with the father disappearing. And it's got to be on a record. I mean, I was laughing and I asked the lady, I said, 
did you ever see the movie John Wick? And she said, yeah. And I said, 20 years ago, maybe I wouldn't beat somebody up, but I'm 60 years old now. I don't, I ain't, I'm not going to beat nobody up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, you do have a motive because you're upset that your motorcycle was stolen and you have, you know, a property like this where it would be easy to conceal if something did happen. But you find that theory laughable. No, it's funny. We, we, I wouldn't go hurt some. I, no. I don't go know. kill somebody. That's stupid. I, no. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> no way. We, 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 we got too much going on. Th- just so everybody is clear of this, we didn't try to revenge on anybody. Yeah, no. The dad, the son, I, and I feel bad for whatever happened to the father. Because, you know, my wife, like I said, talked to the neighbors and they were real concerned. And they, were, they would talk to her back and forth and, you know, no, no way. Nick Wiley was a little more concise in his answer. Yeah, the bike was one of a kind, and we wanted it back, but not that bad. (laughs) That's what insurance is for. Ultimately, Detective Goodlett agreed that they don't suspect the Wileys were involved. Next, police wondered whether any underlying trouble in Alvin's life could explain his disappearance. But that theory, too, fell flat. He would help you out uh, when he could. Uh, might be a, a little bit of a short temper. Um, but he wasn't in as far as uh, contact with the police or criminal things. Uh, we didn't have anything uh, really recent to suggest that he was involved in anything that would you know, put him in danger. So there was nothing to suggest that his lifestyle would have have led him to put himself in any danger that someone would be coming to look for him or, uh, you know, he was, uh, I don't know, he would, he would find himself in bad situations. It seemed for weeks that police didn't know where else to turn. Then, something led their investigation back to its original subject of focus, Tim Darrow. On December 4th, 2017, police searched Tim Darrow's home a second time. They didn't explain in their affidavit why they thought they might find new evidence four months after their initial search, but whatever they were looking for, they didn't find it. During this second search, police did not collect any items of evidence, but a story was forming patched together using narratives from various witnesses that seemed to paint Tim in a suspicious light. Namely, witnesses said that the morning after Alvin's disappearance, Tim was inexplicably muddy. Detective Goodlett says that if that clothing existed, police never collected any. Tim also didn't appear muddy or dirty in the police's body cam video from 7.30pm the night of Alvin's disappearance. But two witnesses swear that when they saw him the next morning, he was. The first witness was Peggy Descamps. She was at Alvin's house the morning after he went missing, and she and Tim and Rocky Conley walked through Alvin's house, looking for any sign of him. 
That's when she noticed Tim's jeans and tennis shoes were covered in mud and he was sweating. Yeah. When you say he was muddy, describe that. Well, he was had mud on his shoes and his pants. His hands had uh, cuts on them. And he was just shaky-like. Then, a second person corroborated this story. Tony Wheatley said that he'd been calling his friend Hopper repeatedly that morning to come down to his shop. He was buying carpet from Hopper, and Hopper was buying tile from him. He was impatient to make the exchange. They often swapped such materials, which they used in their separate rental properties. Obviously, though, Hopper never showed up. But Tim did. He'd come to tell Tony that Hopper was missing. Yeah, well, like I said, it was early in the morning. I already op- I opened up at 9 o'clock. So I'm going to say it's 9.30, almost 10 o'clock. Tim came to the shop in a truck full of mud. I mean, looked like he had been working all day long. Was he muddy or just the truck? No, Tim was muddy. Boots, pants, all that. In my interview with Tim, he denied ever being muddy and said he hadn't been anywhere to get muddy. He said he'd left home after fighting with his father of the motorcycle and went to his girlfriend Tiffany's house. He came back later, talked to police, and maybe put in an air conditioning unit. And then he returned to Tiffany's, where he spent the night. And though Tiffany declined to talk to me, it's not mentioned anywhere that she recalls him leaving her house that night for any reason. Online, in fact, she defends Tim. On police's Facebook post about Alvin's disappearance, Tiffany Dewey writes that Tim was, quote, extremely depressed about everything. Hopper was all Tim had left, she said. Alvin might have been, quote, hard to deal with sometimes, but he never deserved something like this, she said. And after, Tim was never the same. Family says he began distancing himself from them. Some of them haven't talked to him since. Like I said, Tim just kind of dropped off the face of the earth. Again, Tim has not been named a suspect. But from all of the pieces we know about in police's investigation, he was certainly someone they were taking a hard look at. Um, At this point, I I wouldn't feel comfortable calling him a suspect. Um, From all the investigation that we've done, it appears that he is more than likely the last person that we know of that saw his father. Um, So I I still would have to consider him a witness. Um, But I believe he's the last person to have any contact with his dad. Since their initial interview with Tim in 2017, police haven't talked to him again or tried to untangle his conflicting versions of events. My interview with him last episode is the most anyone in the case has heard from him in three years. But police say they do plan to talk to him again, especially to ask him about an interesting tip they received in December of 2017, five months after Alvin went missing. The tip came from a surprising place, the jail. We had a subject that um, wanted to help himself out of a jam 
and wanted to give us information on his what he knew about this investigation. The man was being held in Wood County on a charge of receiving stolen property. He hoped the information he had on Alvin's disappearance could spare him a conviction. He asked detectives to meet him at the jail, and this is what he told them. It said he had been uh, with Tim, and they had, uh, Tim had asked him to go with him, uh, and he did. He went with Tim in a truck, and they drove up some various roads up into Michigan uh, with a barrel in the back of a pickup truck, and uh, Tim dumped the barrel, got back in the car, and they came back to Toledo. Next week, who was this tipster? And what did police learn about this alleged trip to Michigan under the cover of darkness on the night Alvin Darrow disappeared? This remains an open investigation. If you have any information about this case or any other unsolved homicides, call Toledo Crime Stoppers at 419-255-1111. Callers can remain anonymous and there may be reward money. Help put this Code 18 to rest. Help spread the word about the podcast by giving us a five-star review and recommending us to your friends. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you listen. You can also find the episodes and additional case information, including photos and videos, at ToledoBlade.com slash Code18. Code18 is reported and written by me, your host, Caitlin Durbin, for The Blade. Bill Kaplan is our producer, with original art and theme music by Danielle Gamble. Additional original music provided by Joel Roberts. Editing assistance comes from Blade editors Michael Walton, Michael Bryce, and Kim Bates. Hi everyone, this is Caitlin Durbin. I'm a Blade reporter and host of this podcast. If you're enjoying it, I invite you to subscribe to The Blade and support my colleagues in the reliable journalism that makes this work possible. The Blade has been reporting on Toledo's history since before the city itself was established. We are the newspaper of record. Go to ToledoBlade.com and click subscribe.